0: Please, if you will, turn in with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. It's our scripture reading this morning, Matthew 23, 37 to 39. And then our sermon passage is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 27. It's been about a month, believe it or not, since we were in the books of Samuel. We finished up First Samuel uh, about a month ago, and so now we're beginning... 1st uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. But first, Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Brothers and sisters, again, as always, but never forget, that this is the Word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. So please give your full attention to the reading of His Word. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now Second Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David returned two days in Ziklag, And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. And the weapons of war perished. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy, perfect, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let us pray. Oh gracious God, we have heard it. We have heard you speak. You've talked to us. You've told us about yourself. You've told us about your people. You've told us about your people's history. And now we pray that by your spirit you would teach us through the preaching of your word. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would please give us understanding into this passage. We pray, Lord, that it might cause us, that our understanding of this passage might cause us to know you better. So we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, please teach us and instruct us now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, it's been about a month since we finished up 1 Samuel. But as you're most likely aware, the events of our passage this morning follow chronologically on the heels of 1 Samuel 31. While David and his men were busy fighting the Amalekites and rescuing their wives and their children and the possessions down south, the Philistines and the Israelites were engaged in pitch battle to the north. And at the end of the battle, as the Philistine army overwhelmed the Israelites and killed Saul's sons, Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul realized his own impending death was near, and as the narrator tells us in chapter 31, he ended his own life. And when we considered that passage about a month ago, I left open the possibility that the Amalekite in our passage this morning might have assisted Saul, as he says in our passage. And that may very well be the case. There have been some who have made that case. But, as Dale Davis says in his commentary on 2 Samuel, if you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. Have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? I think that's a good point, though a humorous one. There are difficulties either way, whether you believe that the Amalekite or the narrator was telling the truth. But in the end, it seems to make the most sense to conclude that the Amalekite was lying in order to ingratiate himself with the new king. But I think it's also important to note that he seasoned the lies with the truth. That he did, in fact, tell David a few things that were true. In fact, much of what he said was true, while popping into the truth a few key lies. However you choose to interpret the Amalekites' story, the passage itself in its description of David's sorrow and lament over Saul's death shows Israel, even later generations, and us, proper reverence and respect for the Lord's anointed. I'd ask you to consider this thought as we make our way through the passage today, through the sermon. The honor David showed Saul as the Lord's anointed after his death Is only a glimmer of the honor that is due to Jesus the Messiah. The honor that David showed Saul as the Lord's anointed after his death is only a glimmer of the honor that is due unto Jesus the Messiah. The sermon today has two points the first, believing the messenger, and the second, teach them the bow. Again, the first, believing the messenger. And the second, teach them the bow. So let's go to the first point of the sermon, Believing the Messenger. The opening verse of 2 Samuel brings us back to David and his men right after they have returned to their city of Ziklag after defeating the Amalekites further to the south. No doubt they were assessing the damage to their homes. Perhaps they were considering uh, rebuilding when a man from Saul's camp came to them. Now, this man, they didn't know it initially that he was from Saul's camp, but this man came to them with the markings of someone who was in great distress. His clothes were torn, dirt was on his head. These were the signs of someone who was in mourning. And verse 2 says that when he came to David, he fell on the ground and he paid homage. This is behavior that one commentator says implies that he recognized the new king. That's our first clue here about what's going on. And it becomes evident from the verses that follow that the Amalekite, which he will reveal himself to be, in verse 8, had specifically sought David out, traveling roughly 80 miles on foot to bear what he thought would be good news to the ascendant king. Now the man's answer to David's question in verse 3, that he had escaped from the camp of Israel, coupled with his signs of mourning, indicated to David how Israel's battle against the Philistines had gone. He probably understood what he was about to uh, have as an answer to his next question. And so in verse 4, he asked how the battle went, even though he probably knew. And the man responded, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David asks the man how he knew that Saul and Jonathan are dead. And in verse 6, the young man briefly tells David his story, which runs through to the end of verse 10. The Amalekite man is confident That David will never be able to find out what what he tells David is true, whether or not. But what he doesn't know is that we, the readers, have already been told by the narrator what happened. It's apparent from the narrative that most of what the Amalekite tells David is true, with just a couple of small lies that have been mixed in for maximum effect. And so, most likely, this man was actually there on the battlefield as he tells David in verse six. He was probably not a combatant but a servant. He says in verse 6 that he was on Mount Gilboa by chance. And that may very well be true. He probably saw saw, saw Saul and his armor bearer there. No doubt he saw an exhausted Saul leaning on his spear as he tells David. He must have heard Saul tell his armor bearer to strike Saul with his sword. But either he did not hear the armor bearer's reason for refusing Saul if, if the armor bearer gave one. We have to presume that he probably did. And it was probably something along the same lines as what David used when he had the opportunity to take Saul's life and he did not. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But apparently the Amalekite did not hear it. Well, these lies, according to one commentator, are that the, the Amalekite replaced the armor bearer with himself and replaced the armor bearer's refusal to kill Saul with his own willingness to do so. And of course he, admit, he omits the actual call, cause of Saul's death. The most likely story is that the Amalekite, following the battle, was out on the battlefield looting the bodies of the deceased, and happened upon Saul and his armor-bearer, and hoped to capitalize on what he thought was his good fortune with the next king, David. Now some of you may be familiar with the musical Les Miserables, and if you are, you'll no doubt remember the Tenardiers, the couple who provide for the musical, but also for the book, a great deal of comic relief. But these people at their base, they are true scoundrels. They are the worst of the worst in so many ways. Now, if you haven't read the novel, you might, be, you might not know that Monsieur Thenardier was at the Battle of Water, Waterloo. But he wasn't there as a soldier in Napoleon's army, as he loved to tell the tale. In fact, the end the that the Tenardiers managed was called Sergeant of Waterloo. But Thénardier was actually there following the epic battle to rob valuables from the slain bodies. And while he was looting, he ended up saving the life of one of his victims, a colonel, who turned out to be the Baron Pontmercy, the father of one of the main characters, Marius. probably recognize that name if you're familiar with the musical. And Thénardier, not wishing to be caught looting, tells the colonel that he's a sergeant in Napoleon's army, and the colonel names Thenardier in his will as someone that his son Marius, Marius should take care of, if at all possible. Now the Amalekite, though not in the exact situation, similarly wishes to take advantage of the good graces of the warlord of Ziklag. The future king, David. And so stripping Saul of his crown and his armband, he travels swiftly to the south. He makes himself what he thinks to be the hero of the story. He puts Saul out of his misery. Saul begged him. And he followed through. And the young man finished his tale in verse 10. And David and all the men who were with him tore their clothes. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son. As well as for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel who had fallen. In verse 13, David asked the man where he came from. And he responded to David. Giving a similar answer to what to what he said that he told to Saul. But it was also different in a key way. He says, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. He simply told Saul in his own story that he was an Amalekite. Now all of Israel should have known, just like David, that they were not to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And the Amalekite, no doubt, was hoping that by being a foreigner, that he would be exempted from this requirement. In response to Saul's question in verse 8, the man said that he was an Amalekite. But in response to David's question, he said that he was the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. He was a second generation immigrant within Israel. He wasn't as much of an outsider as he had first led on. David, who had far more cause to strike down Saul when he had two perfect opportunities, would not dare to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. But this man, an Amalekite, but not exactly a foreigner, indicates that he didn't hesitate to take Saul's life. David has reasons to be suspicious of the man's loyalty, but he's got no reason here to to doubt what this man has told David is true. And so David, in verse 14, asks a question which is actually an accusation. How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The clear implication was that this man should have been afraid, very afraid, to strike down Saul. And so in a sad, ironic twist, David orders one of his own young men to execute the Amalekite. David had just finished striking down all of the Amalekites who had taken his, his and his men's wives and children, and now he's finishing off the lot of them. And David, speaking to the man's corpse in, verse, corpse in verse 16, says, Your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David took the young man in his word. He had no reason not to believe him. He might somehow find out later that the, the words that the man said Uh, weren't exactly true, perhaps, but it makes no difference. The man came as his own accuser, and the only option, the only punishment, in the case of someone who takes the life of the anointed, is death. This man's false testimony ended his life. That takes us to the second section, the second point of the sermon, Teach Them the Bow. In verse 17, we read that David lamented with with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. Now, probably this lamentation takes place at the point in the passage, the narrative, when we read that, that David and his men lamented all the day and into the evening. That's probably when this lamentation was uttered by David. And he told the people in verse 18 that it should be taught to the people of Judah. In the Hebrew, what is translated with the word it, you can see this probably in some of your Bibles in a footnote, it's actually the word bow, meaning that the bow should be taught to the people. The bow is the name of this lamentation that's recorded in verses 19 to 27. Verse 18 says that it is written in the book of Jashar, which means the upright, And this book is mentioned in one other place in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, where it is said that the stopping of the sun at Gibeon is recorded in the book of Jashar. According to Dale Davis, David names his lament the bow in memory of Jonathan's weapon, which he mentions specifically in verse 22. But it's also fitting because a bow of another sort was given by God to his people as a reminder as a sign of his covenant with them and his promise that he would never again destroy the earth by flood. The rainbow reminds God's people of his covenant with them and of course it's a bow that's pointing up. The curved part of the bow points up implying that God would bring about his own hurt if he broke his promise. The bow reminds God's people of the covenant that David, made, David and Jonathan made with one another, in which Jonathan gave up his right to the throne in favor of the Lord's anointed. Now David will never forget Saul's maniacal pursuit of him in the wilderness. Nor will he forget Saul's many attempts at killing David with his spear. And yet David holds the Lord's anointed in such high regard that he breaks out into, song, into a song of grief over Saul's death. In verse 19, chapter 1 shifts from narrative prose to poetry, as David begins his lament, which begins with the words, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And that verse, that that phrase, how the mighty has fallen, it still is used today in places that have nothing to do with the Bible, with the church. Well, in this verse, David could be speaking of Saul or Jonathan or both who were slain on Mount Gilboa. Jonathan's other brothers who died in the battle don't get mentioned by name in our passage. But they may also be implied. In verse 20, David says that he doesn't want it known in Gath or Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines and the uncircumcised exult rejoice over the deaths of these great men. Why is that? Why would he not want these people to know about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan? and the others who lie slain on the sides of Mount Goboa. Well, one of the more surreal experiences that I had while stationed in Bahrain, it really wasn't a, a highly eventful time for me. It wasn't like being in the theater of war. But while I was there, a few of us Marines, we went to the local mall, and we went to the movie theater, which was quite a grand place, and we went to see Saving Private Ryan. And it was quite unnerving, sitting in this theater filled with Bahrainis and Saudis and probably some Kuwaitis, when whenever Americans would be kill, killed on the field of battle, whether it was while they were storming the beaches of Normandy or in various places throughout France, all of the rest of the audience would cheer. They were happy. Now we were told that this was because Arab folks they like violence and they. Violence appeals to them, and I, I get that, I get that. But still, as a, as a somewhat young Marine, very American, very much in the military, high and tight, with just a few other uh, brothers uh, with me, it was quite an unnerving time, to say the least. David uh, understands this. To see other people cheering over the death, the slaughter of your own people, is shocking and painful. And so he does not want it to happen. He doesn't want the enemies to know. In verse 21, David calls on the mountains of Gilboa not to allow dew to form or rain to fall on them, nor fruit and produce to come forth, because it was on those mountains that Saul's shield, the shield of the mighty, was defiled, not anointed with oil. And verse 22 reads, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Here David extols Jonathan's and Saul's prowess on the field of battle. And here it seems is where David derives the title of this lament, Jonathan's bow. David extols the fact that Jonathan, despite his loyalty to and friendship with David, honored his father to the end. He didn't stop fighting alongside his father. He didn't join David's merry band of men. He says in verse twenty-three, in life and in death, they were not divided. And goes on to speak of their speed and their strength in battle. Now, in contrast to the to the daughters of the Philistines, David does want the daughters of Israel to weep over the death of Saul, who, as he puts it in verse twenty-four, clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold. On your apparel. He reminds them that Saul had been good to them. That his kingship had been good for the daughters of Israel. He makes how the mighty have fallen a refrain in verse 25. And he cries, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Jonathan, closer to David than any of his biological brothers, was a true brother to him. As David expresses in verse 26. He was a closer friend to David than David's wives. Even Jonathan's own sister, Michal, which will become plain later in Second Samuel. And David finishes his lament by, in verse 27 by repeat, repeating the refrain, "How the mighty have fallen," and adding, "And the weapons of war perished." The first king of Israel has died. Saul wasn't the king that Israel needed, but he was very much the one that they deserved. He pursued David relentlessly to the detriment of fighting against Israel's enemies, which most likely led to Saul's own demise in battle because he'd allowed the Philistines to become so strong. Of all people, David had reason. He had cause to hate Saul, to be bitter towards Saul. And perhaps in the dark recesses of his heart, he did harbor resentment towards Saul. But in his public lament, there is no hint of that. His mourning over the death of his king, the Lord's anointed, is sincere. And there is no sense of David desiring not to waste a good crisis in order to ascend the throne and become king. Though he's anointed king of Judah in chapter 2, that isn't the case with the northern tribes, Israel. Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, is made king there. And it's not until two years later, after Ishbosheth himself is murdered, that David is anointed king of Israel. And that only after David had avenged the murder of Ishbosheth by having the man executed who murdered him. All of this is to say that David's lament for Saul is not merely for show. Most certainly, Jonathan's death was a greater blow to David. They'd made a covenant with one another. Jonathan's allegiance to David meant that he gave up his right to the throne. But David still had loyalty to Israel's king. He still paid honor and homage to the, the, the Lord's anointed. How different it was, however, when King David's greater son, King Jesus, arrived. He most certainly was warmly received by some. We have accounts of that in Scripture. But over all his life was marked by the rejection of his own people. He was treated by the Jewish people the way that Saul had been treated by the Philistines. The one who lamented over Jerusalem the way that David lamented over Saul was rejected by Jerusalem the way that Saul rejected David. Jesus Christ is the Lord's anointed. And what is often taken as His last name, Christ, is actually a title which means anointed, Messiah. Rather than rejoicing at the prospect of His execution, crying out to crucify him rather than the notorious prisoner Barabbas, they should have, his, his people should have lamented even the possibility of the anointed's death. And even today, the Lord's name is used by people who hate him and even by some who have called upon his name for salvation as a curse word. Jesus Christ is probably said more often in this fallen world as an epithet than as a praise But make no mistake, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, is not still buried in some tomb the way that Saul, the Lord's first anointed, was. While unbelievers might still seek the one who was alive among the dead, while they may go on explorations, archaeological excursions, going into Israel trying to find the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, we know that He is risen And He is coming again, but not in meekness this time, but mightily and in full glory to judge the living and the dead. Those few women faithful to Jesus might have cried out and lament how the mighty have fallen, but the mighty one did not stay fallen, but is very much alive. And those who hated Him and mocked Him in this life will weep and mourn upon His return. But for those who believe for those who trust in Christ Jesus the Lord's anointed will come bearing not a cup of judgment but a cup of mercy to pour out on our heads anointing us with oil. He will seat us at a table at a feast, a banquet in His honor. He will cause us To live by streams of living water. Where we will never again know the valley of the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the anointed one. The Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and that he is coming again. And we pray that you would make us ready. That we would eagerly await, anticipate his return. But please help us not to lose focus. Help us not to stray. Help us not to become distracted. Please help us to keep our eyes upon our Lord. We look forward to the day when our lamenting will be over. That day when you, O oh Lord Jesus, will return in the fullness of your glory. And we pray once again, O oh Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.